Okay, here's the deal. I uh, have a younger brother whose name is Peter Philip Hatton. Got it? Uh, he's a church planner and a lead pastor uh, as well with a church called Redeemer Edmond up in Oklahoma. Uh, we're very close, but I'm much better looking. Uh, I take all the credit for Pete becoming all everything in all the sports he participated in. I take all the credit for him becoming all everything in football, wrestling, and lacrosse. And I take all the credit for him continuing on to be a, a D1 athlete in wrestling and lacrosse at Penn State. Uh, if Pete and I grew up, now I will say my parents are here so I can't take the credit for the genes, but I can take credit for everything that happened in our relationship and how it was, he was pushed. If Pete and I grew up today, in today's fragile world, uh, CPS would have visited our house every week. Uh, not, not because of my parents, <laughs> mind you, but because of two brothers. Uh, to this morning, we're going to look at a tale of two brothers in chapters 38 and 39, and I want to do just a little time out because I want to, if I may, offer an alternative interpretation because of the fragile world we're living in offer an alternative interpretation to, um, to all the ideological hysteria that's going on. I know that we're all in it. We're in the social media hysteria. We're in the cultural hysteria, the political, uh, the social, the ideological. All of that that's going on, this mania, this hysteria. Now, for the popular opinion is this. The popular opinion is that, man, this is a great thing. This is a positive thing. This is... This is the change that's been needed, and we're, and we're celebrating in that. And there probably is some of that tucked in here. But I'd like to offer just another alternative in interpretation that would be this. Uh, man, this is a sign of how fragile we are. This is actually a, a sign of pathological insecurity, a deep neurosis that we're not solid, but we're sinking. We're not intact, but we're breaking. We live in an incredibly fragile world, and we're seeing the fragility right now. Okay, let's go back to the two brothers. There was in our relationship an, an unbending, unbreaking brother-law. I mean, we had a brother-law, and the brother-law was this. I can pummel Pete whenever I want, but no one else can touch him, right? This was our brotherly love. <laughs> now, what we're going to see in Genesis is two brothers and a tale of two brothers. And what I want you to do as we read this. Now, it's very long, so we're not going to, I'm going to summarize some of it. We're going to read some of it together. But I want you to be asking the, this question while you're reading the two brothers. Which brother would you choose? You know, be like, which brother would I choose to be the direct descendant of Jesus? Which brother would I choose? Which brother would you, what brother do you think God would choose to save the world? Think that when you're going through this. Which brother would be a part of God's plan through the direct descendant to Jesus? Which brother do you want to save you? Your loved ones, Waco, okay? All right, so I'm going to summarize some. This is going to be a little of the summary, then we'll read some of it. Let's just stay seated because... It's an extended period of scripture reading, a little different from what we're doing. We're going to start with brother number one. So brother number one is Judah. Uh, sometime after Joseph is sold into slavery, 
uh, Judah marries a Canaanite woman, which uh, is not a good thing. It's not because God is being a racist and doesn't want them to marry outside the race, because Moses marries someone outside his race. Uh, many Old Testament believers marry someone outside their race. It's not because God is a racist. It's because God is God, and God is reality. And what he's saying is don't marry. He's not saying don't marry someone outside your race. He's saying don't marry someone outside your faith in me because I'm reality. And if we marry outside our faith in him, we're actually going to start tearing at the spiritual fabric of marriage. It wasn't designed that way. We'll start tearing at the spiritual fabric of the universe. You'll, you'll release uh, unnecessary relational pain into your marriage and into your life. Spiritual struggles and pain unnecessarily into your life. That's why. But then if I was in the college campus, I know I would have this question to me when I was a campus minister, but Jeff, that's so narrow-minded. How do you know that's not so narrow-minded? And the answer would be because we have God has given us the example of Judah to show us it's not about being narrow-minded. It's being about caring for you. Don't marry outside your faith in me is what God is saying. So Judah doesn't heed that. So he tears at the spiritual fabric of the universe. And here's what happens. He has three sons. He marries a Canaanite woman. He has three sons. Uh, all three of them, Er, Onan, and Shelah, are spiritual losers. Just like you and me. They're just like you and me. Uh, and when Paul talks about what happens when you're a spiritual loser, what happens is sin... It carries death with it. He says the wages of sin is death. So sin carries death with it. So wherever sin goes, death goes with it. It's not like we can avoid it. Sometimes that's the way we think. We think, ah, you know, this line isn't that bad or this isn't that bad, but it carries death with it. And so we see this with the first two sons. Dramatically, they end up dying because of their sins. But this is where Tamar ends in. You might have heard this name. Now, Tamar, she enters the tale, and she's so interesting because she's Judah's firstborn's wife, heir's wife, and she's this spiritually mysterious person. Now, that everyone's in agreement on how I'm going to see the text. I think what's so interesting about her, she might be the only one trusting God in this whole tale. Now, not everyone agrees with me. Not every Bible teacher, scholar says that. Some are like, I just don't know. She seems pretty messed up too. And I would say, yes, she's certainly messed up. But still, she seems to be the only one trusting God in the text. Now, in those days, they had a brother-in-law. Isn't this interesting? Brother-in-laws. Everybody has brother-in-laws. In those days in the ancient world, they had a brother-in-law. In fact, it becomes a mosaic law. <clears throat> Here's the law. When the firstborn son dies, if he's married, the spouse, the wife of the firstborn son, if there's another brother in the family, he's to marry the wife of the firstborn son. Why? Because of a brother-law. Because of brotherly love. Because we want the firstborn son's name not to leave the earth. They want his identity to continue. And so a brother who has brotherly love would, this is total, complete self-sacrifice. This is total and complete, like, self-giving love. I'm going to marry my brother's wife so that his name can continue on the face of the earth. It's breathtaking, absolute breathtaking. So Er dies and Onan marries Tamar. 
Now, what we find with, what does Onan do? Well, Onan takes some of the relationship. He takes the sexual part of the relationship, but he, he deceptively does not produce babies. Intentionally so. He has no intention of producing babies. And so what is this? Well, this is not brotherly love. This is lust. And he dramatically dies. Now, Judah is seen his firstborn son die because of his sin. He's seen his secondborn son die because of his sin. And now he's got Sheila, which is an interesting name for a boy. And she, he's like, I don't know. He should be thinking, oh, my word, I'm such a spiritual loser. My sons are such spiritual losers. Oh, God, have mercy on us. But instead, he says, Tamar's a spiritual loser. Something's wrong with her. She's bad luck. She's got bad karma. And so what does he do? Well, he does some spiritual judo on her. What he ends up doing is saying, okay, Tamar, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to uphold the brotherly law and give you marriage to Sheila when he's of age. But he was completely lying. He had no intention of doing so. And that brings us to our reading of the text. So here's the text. You ready? In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah's wife dies. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adumalite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enam. This is probably a, a cult temple, an idolatrous temple, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, for she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not given him and not been given to him in marriage. Now, when Judah saw her, he thought, man, she's a prostitute, for she covered her face. So he turned to her at the roadside and said, hey, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that was in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then he arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Now what ends up happening is, is he starts, he wants to give, get his stuff back and give her the goat, but he can't find this woman, and no one in town ever saw the woman. So now we pick up in 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's been pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Now, what happens next? Was she, and he said, and she said to him, please identify whose these are. Uh, when, when Judah hears this word, he probably had the hair on the back of his head stand up, and a shiver went straight down his spine, because these are the exact same words he told his dad when he grabbed Joseph's bloody robe and said, please examine this, dad, to make sure this is your son. I mean, just amazing. All right, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. I did not give her to my son, Sheila, because I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. So there's brother number one, right? Now let's look at brother number two. This is Joseph. So if Judah is ying, Joseph is what? Yeah, there we go. 
So, now Joseph, verse 1, had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, this is so important to say because everything that's happened to Joseph in the ancient world doesn't happen. In other words, God wants to make it real clear that all these bad things that are happening to Joseph, I'm with him. Because when bad things happen to you in the ancient world, just like when bad things happen to us in the modern world, the first thing we think is God is not with us. But not only that, how could he be? Because if something bad happens to you, something's wrong with you, and a God would never be with a broken, messy, wronged person. What God would do that? And so this text is making really, really clear the Lord was with him. Okay, so let's continue. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. So far, so great. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw. I mean, his master, he's a polytheistic. He worships many gods. He sees that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now let's go down to verse 6b. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In other words, he's hot, right? And after a time, his master's wife casts her eyes on Joseph and says, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house, in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. In other words, I like him. How could I do this to him? And then he says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, Day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So this is not just a one-time thing that he had this great moment of, like, rectitude. No! This is a daily, several times a day, come sleep with me, come sleep with me, come sleep with me. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So, so what's going on here? I think it's really important for us to see that there's something going on that's incredibly powerful that's in every human being. And that is this incredible desire to be loved can absolutely consume you. It can absolutely consume us. And it's consuming her. And rejection can absolutely reject you. It can wreck you. It can ruin you. And that's what happens to her. She's so consumed by her desire to be loved, and she's been, in her eyes, completely rejected. She's wrecked. She can't recover. So what does she do? She falsely accuses Joseph of rape. So let's pick it up in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words, in other words, that his wife had spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, he raped me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now again, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Familiar? Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. 
All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would turn the light on. Shine on the page. Would you open our eyes to the wonder, to the beauty, to the truth, to the reality of you in this text, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this week, when I was starting to put this thing together, I had a little debate with myself, and I want to let you in on the debate. The logical side of me, the logic me was saying, okay, right now, let's just give them the text big idea. In other words, give them the preaching point right now. This is the time to do it. Give them the preaching point. Give them, give them what the big idea is so they have it logically and clearly in their mind as we go forward because it's thick. There's a lot to it. But then the artistic part of me said, no, no, wait, wait, keep the tension in the text. Keep the text sticky. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do is both. I'm going to do the split me. All right, you ready? Because the preaching point is so sticky. The big idea is loaded with tension, so much so that I need to tell you at the bat, and then we're going to unpack the beauty of it. Here it is. Are you ready? For those of you that are theologically minded, you should like this. I was really impressed with it. God overrides what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Got it? God overrides what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Awesome. All of us theologians are like, dang, write that down. I'm going to hang on to that, and that's going to last for a long time. Those of us that see that as really bulky, this might be better. Nothing can stop God, including you. Nothing can stop God. Including you, including you, including you. We desperately need to hear this. Our culture desperately needs to feel this. The church needs to have this go down deep into our bones. So here we go. God overrides what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Or, less bulky, nothing can stop God including you. This means God overrides your sin to accomplish what he loves. God overrides your sin to accomplish what he loves. Look at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, why is she in labor? Why is Tamar giving birth to twins? Because of Judah's sin. There were twins in her room, and when she was in labor, one put out their hand. I mean, does this sound familiar? Jacob, Esau. I, I mean, this is unbelievable. So you have one of, the, one of the babies puts the hand out of the womb and, and then pulls it back in because the other one basically does a wrestling move on them and comes out before the one that had initially put the hand out. And so the midwife says, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name is called Perez. Now, here's the thing about Perez. Isn't that interesting? Struggle in the womb. Judah's sin. It's so chaotic. It's so unbelievable. It's so confusing. It's so weird. But Perez is the direct descendant to Jesus. Which brother would you choose? Would you choose Judah or would you choose Joseph to be a part of God's plan to save you? 
and your loved ones to save Waco, which brother would you use? I mean, some of you are thinking, oh, my word, Jeff, but please, wait a minute. I mean, Judah is sinning. In fact, 38, in chapter 38, Judah is a serial sinner. All he does is sin. He does one good thing in chapter 38, and that is he acknowledges that he's a sinner. That's his good work. His good work in all of 38 is, oh my word, I am messed up. Yep. All that Judah does is sin in this text. And yep, it's sin. Now some of us are also thinking, but if that's the case, wait a minute, is sin now not a big deal? Nope. Sin is still a big deal. In fact, sin wrecks every person in this text. Every person in this passage gets wrecked by sin. Every relationship in this passage gets wrecked by sin. Because of sin, in this passage, a father loses two sons, literally. Because of sin in this passage, a woman is sexually abused by two different men in this passage. Because of sin in this passage, a father in law is ready to burn and murder his daughter-in-law for committing the same sin he did. He's so high on the heroin of self-righteousness. Sin wrecks everyone in this text. Everyone. But that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is what can wreck sin. Can anyone override sin? Can anything wreck sin? And Perez, the direct descendant to David, for the Old Testament folks reading this, and to Jesus for the rest of us, answers, yes. Nothing can stop God including you, including your sin. So, theologians out there, God overrides sin to accomplish what he loves. Nothing can stop God, not even your sin. This also means God overrides your suffering, though, because we're now moving to the second brother, right? Brother number two, tale of two brothers. God, this means that God overrides your suffering to accomplish what he loves. Look at verse 20. And Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. That's an interesting hint. The place where the king's prisoners are confined. This is a hint that something bigger is at work, that some magnificent being is on the move. Even when you don't see it, even when it appears hidden, even when it looks like all heck is breaking loose. <clears throat> now, in verse 40, in chapter 40, verse 1, it says this. We didn't read this, but I want you to hear it because it, it, it kind of pushes forward what's happening here. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and the baker committed an offense against the Lord their God, the Lord, the king of Egypt, and the king of Egypt put them in the prison where Joseph was confined. Remember when we read that tale about the, at the beginning, we had that caravan, and then the text mentioned what the camels were carrying, and all of us are like, 
Who cares what the camels are carrying? Why would you list what the camels are carrying? This is one of those times, again, where you're like, who cares about pampered chef and the cupbearer? Who cares? Well, here's what's happening. By the cupbearer getting to prison, he connects to Joseph. Joseph is now being connected eventually from this cupbearer to Pharaoh. Well, why is it important that Joseph gets connected to Pharaoh? Because when Joseph gets connected to Pharaoh, Joseph ends up saving Egypt. Joseph ends up saving Israel. Joseph ends up saving the ancient world. Joseph ends up saving the direct descendant to David, who's the direct descendant to Judah, I mean to Jesus, who saves you and saves your loved ones and saves Waco. And some of us are thinking, but wait a minute, Jeff, Joseph is suffering. Yeah, he is. And he does. And then now we want to ask, but wait a minute, are you saying that suffering is no big deal? Suck it up. Are you saying that being a victim and being sinned against and abused is no big deal? Suffer for Jesus. Now, suffering is still a big deal. I'm sure when Joseph, well, I knew, do know this. I mean, what we're looking at this tale is just, it's really fascinating. One of the things that strikes me about reading this is that everyone is incredibly passionate. I love that. There are no Stoics in this passage. There are no Stoics in this whole tale. Um, human emotion is everywhere. Human passions are on the surface. Potiphar's wife, everyone is passionate. Everyone is emotional. And we don't get it when we first read the story when Joseph, his brothers throw him into that empty cistern and they're plotting to kill him and then they eventually are going to sell him to slavery. And then it, the text said, remember, they sat down to eat. The brothers did, while Joseph's in the, in the well. Well, in chapter 40, we're going to realize that he was crying out to his brothers, begging them to spare his life, begging them to have compassion on him, begging them not to do this. So did Joseph suffer? The ultimate betrayal, your brother betrayed you. Your brother So I bet he broke. And I bet he said things like, I thirst. I'm breaking. And I bet he struggled with questions like, why, God? What are you doing? Are you punishing me? Because that's what everybody is telling me. Thank God Job's friends weren't in this story. And I'm sure he said things like, I know he had to struggle with this because we're told over and over again, the Lord is with you, Joseph. The Lord is with you, Joseph. The Lord is with you, Joseph. I'm sure he struggled. He had to say, if you're with me, God, why am I suffering? If you're with me, God, why do I suffer without relief? 
despite my prayers. You don't hear me. I just stand here and I bleed. Suffering hurts in this text. That's not the point of the text, though. Just like sin is all over the text. (coughs) It's not the point of the text. The point of the text is, can, is anything out there comfort me in my suffering? Is there anything out there that can override suffering, overmaster it, overwork it, beat it? And Joseph's sufferings, because his sufferings lead to the saving of Egypt, the saving of Israel, the saving of the ancient world, the saving of the direct line to David, to Jesus, the saving of you, the saving of your loved ones, the saving of Waco. Joseph's sufferings answer, yes. Nothing can stop God including your suffering. So, we come to the end of the tale of two brothers. What are we supposed to take from this tale? You know, we got that nice theological thing we say, God, you know, uh, what is <laughs> we say, God overrides what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Nothing can stop God. We have that. But let's apply it a little bit. Here's what we got. The tale of two brothers tells us that Judah's sin and Judah's and Joseph's suffering is what God uses to save the world. It's what God uses to save you. It's what God uses to save your loved ones. It's what God uses to save Waco. You know what this means? This means that God doesn't love you because you're lovable. What Judah teaches us is that God loves you in your sin. God loves you while you're mean. God loves you when you're high on your self-righteousness. God loves you when you're full of hypocrisy. God loves you when you're sexually sinning. God loves you when you're spiritually blind and you think it's their fault and that group's fault and them over there, their fault. God loves you while you're condemning and accusing people. God loves you while you're canceling and censoring and silencing people. God loves you. This also means that God does not use you because you're strong. He uses you while you're weak. He uses you while you're in pain. He uses you while you're suffering. He uses you while you're lonely. He uses you while you're anxious. He uses you while you have relational conflict. He uses you while you're struggling. He uses you when you feel defeated. God overrides what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Nothing can stop God, including you. Now, here's the deal. So far, so good. Boom. This is powerful stuff. This is great stuff. This is hopeful stuff. But it doesn't work if something's missing. Genesis 38 and 39 cannot work if something's missing in this text. Judah and Joseph cannot have God 
override sin and suffering, what he hates, to accomplish what he loves in their life. It can't happen if something's missing in this text, if something doesn't exist in this text. Well, what's missing? What makes it work? What makes God override sin and suffering, what he hates, to accomplish what he loves, which is loving you? How does that work? How can it work? There must be a better brother. There must be another brother. There must be a third brother. Someone that actually overrides sin. Someone that actually overrides suffering. And because of this better brother, this better brother says to you, to you who are the Judah you, the sinful you, he says to you, I am your brother. My death wrecked your sin. I override all the sin in your life to accomplish what I love in your life, which is I love you. My purposes will be fulfilled in your life. Nothing can stop me. You know what this means today? You know what this means for us? This is so desperately needs to be heard in the church. It's so desperately needs to hear for us right now. This means that right now, you and I and anyone out there in the culture, no matter what your political bent is, it doesn't matter what your ideological bent is, right now everyone can stand up and breathe the fresh air of forgiveness. Everyone. No one needs to be condemned anymore. No one needs to be accused anymore. Everyone can breathe the fresh air of forgiveness because we're all spiritual losers. All of us can be healed. Right now, you can be healed. Jesus wrecked your sin. You're healed. You can get up. You can trust God. You can let God's love begin to make you lovely. Because here's the deal. God doesn't love you because you're lovely. Jesus loves you because you're his brother and sister. Jesus, the better brother, deals with your suffering. This is why he can say to you, the Joseph you, the suffering you. He can go up to you and he can say things like this. I'm your brother. I suffered. In my suffering, I absorbed all your suffering in my suffering. This means that I override what I hate, which is you suffering. I override it all now to accomplish what I love, certainly in your life, but it's not just about you. Through your suffering, I am accomplishing a myriad of beautiful things. So you know what this means? This is so incredible. What this means is that you and I can be a human being. You can be human again. We can say to everybody, welcome to the human race. Because the human race, the Bible says in other places, there's this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. You know what the Bible calls this period? You know how it characterizes it for you and me in Revelation? 
tribulation. <laughs> suffering. In other words, just it's an age of suffering because we're not home yet. So you can be a human being. When you touch a burner, it hurts. So everyone needs to hurt. Hurt. Suffer. Wail. Mourn. God can handle it. And then instead of stuffing your pain, and instead of being overwhelmed by your pain, learn to pray your pain to God. Learn to process your pain with God. Tell him about your pain. Peter, if he was here, he'd say, look, take your anxieties, take your anxieties and learn to unload it on the one that can only carry it. Because if you carry it, you stay anxious. Because you're not able to. It's the same with suffering. Pray your suffering. Pray your pain. Learn to process it with God. That's what this text is saying. And then this text is saying you can wait on God because what is when you're suffering, you want it to end. It could be physically. You want it to end. You want your illness to end. You get COVID. Everyone that's had COVID is saying, oh, I want this to end. But what happens is you're waiting for something. Maybe you have relational tensions. Oh, I wish it would end suffering. You're lonely. Oh, I wish it would end. You struggle with personal issues and weaknesses in your life and sins. Oh, I want it to end. You struggle with people you love and the decisions they're making. Oh, I wish it would end. You know what the word for wait is? Because you're waiting for something to be resolved. That's called suffering. You know what the, the Hebrew word for wait is? It's the same word that's used for rope. This is incredibly interesting. Because what is a rope is strands that get tied together through pressure and now they're a, a rope. What waiting does, it's not breaking you. What waiting is doing is changing you, accomplishing something that couldn't be accomplished otherwise. You start turning into a rope. Listen, and while you wait on God, look for him to use you God doesn't use you because you're strong. He uses you because you're my sister. You're my brother. That's why he uses you. All right, y'all. That's all I got. That's the tale of two brothers. Judah, Joseph. God overrides what he hates. Sin, suffering. To accomplish what he loves. He loves you. Nothing can stop him. Not even you.